So even though politicians in the United States are saying, oh, we want to de-risk American businesses like really big on China, I was wondering with Macron saying he wants to have better relations with China, where do French companies stand on China? Uh, you know, others like uh, L'Oréal, for instance, another huge French comp company in, in cosmetics, uh, they do a huge amount of business in China. So even though I don't know those businesses personally, I can't imagine that the lobbying Macron or the French government to uh, mm. de-risk or pull on the, on the Chinese market because that's where all their growth is coming from. Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. We're very blessed today to have Arnaud Bertrand, who is an entrepreneur and CEO of Me and Chi. Is that correct? That's right. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Arnaud Bertrand, which offers a range of products inspired by traditional Chinese herbalism. He's also the former CEO of House Trip, which was sold to TripAdvisor. In addition to his activities in business, Arnaud is a well-known commentator on economics and geopolitics. He's regularly featured on CGTN, The Global Times, New China TV, and at debates, wow, fantastic debate, by the way, at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute at Cambridge, Massachusetts, and on his social media, where he has more than 100,000 followers. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. We'd like to learn a little bit more about you. You live in Shanghai. Could you tell us a little bit about your original decision to move to China and why have you been in Shanghai for how many years and uh, why did you stay? So I actually already moved away from Shanghai. I lived there during seven years until uh, early this year. I tend to move quite a lot. I've already lived in uh, eight countries. The reason for moving to Shanghai is simply because my uh, wife is from Shanghai. Wow. And the story is that we used to live in Nepal, in a small town called uh, Pokhara. And my wife fell pregnant with our first child. So we were already, you know, thinking of going somewhere. And then, I don't know if you remember, there was a big earthquake in Nepal in 2015. And Pokhara happened to be like very, very close to the epicenter of that earthquake. And so we were, you know, right in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. yes. and after that, we told ourselves, OK, it's really time to move. Mm. And that's when we went to Shanghai. Because, you know, my wife's family was there and we also wanted to live in China for uh, our future daughter's education because we wanted to educate her in, in both cultures. I mean, the, the Chinese culture and the French culture. So, yeah, that's what motivated our decision at the time. Was that your first time going to China when you moved there? No, no, no. My wife is Chinese. We've been together for 17 years. It's been quite a while. And, you know, as soon as we got together, we were going to China every year. So I've been coming to China very regularly for 17 years. Well, I mean, 17 years ago, it seems like the world had a much more positive view of China. That's around the 2008 
it's around that time, 2008 Summer Olympics, when China was, you know, very popular internationally. What were your first impressions of your first few visits to China like? Well, I think actually my first visit must have been 2006 or 2007. Uh, I mean, at the time I was very young. I'd never been to, yeah, maybe I'd been to Asia only once or something like that. Totally uneducated about the region. The only thing basically I knew about it was, uh, you know, from speaking to uh, my wife. And so I came to China with a lot of preconceptions, what everyone would have when they're educated in, in my case, in, in France, but in the West in general. Uh, I think it took a while, several visits to China to start to understand that maybe the what we're told about China, what we're educated to believe about, about China is rather different from the reality on the ground. Well, Shanghai is an especially Western-like city. It's international, like Hong Kong. So did you immediately move to Shanghai seven years ago? Or how many other places in China have you visited? And what were your actual impressions or experiences? And, you know, it's okay on this show to tell us things that maybe, wow, that stood out and it was troublesome. You know, oh my goodness. For example, for me, traffic and where pedestrians are, like you have sometimes bicycles and motorcycles on the sidewalk and pedestrians in the motorcycle lane. And I was just like, okay, I need to figure out how to get from point A to point B without being struck by something. So, you know, what were your impressions, good and bad, about coming to China? Good question. So, I mean, to answer your first question, I've, I've visited quite a few places in China because I've been to 28 of the 34 provinces. So I've seen most of China, I would say. Wow. And most provinces have been multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to go back to my first impressions. I mean, the, I wasn't struck by any chaos or anything like, like you because I had been to India before. India is just in another league in that respect. So China felt very oh. quiet on calm compared to, uh, to India. <laughs> I guess what struck me the most, if I remember, was how different the culture was. Like, even with my wife, I was speaking about things that I assumed were, you know, common cultural references all around the world. Like, say, for instance, the Beatles. Everyone is meant to know the Beatles or the Rolling Stones and so on. <laughs> but no, most Chinese, uh, my wife in particular, I, I never heard of, of, uh, of them. So Michael Jackson, that's the international. Yeah, maybe Michael Jackson, <laughs> she, uh, she had. But uh, and that's actually what got me uh, most interested about China, because it was the, probably the first time in my life where I'd been to a country where there was so little cultural you know, similarities, where everything, the entire worldview was so different and all the cultural references were, were totally, uh, you know, different. So mm. I don't know if that's a positive or a negative aspect, but it's, it's, it's something that I found very interesting. <clears throat> Otherwise, yes, it's, uh, things were, you know, very different. I'm, I'm trying to think what has really struck me back. Uh, <laughs> I mean, at the time, pollution was very bad. When I first went to China, like really, really bad, I remember some days where, you know, you couldn't see further than a few meters away, only in big cities. So when you went to the countryside, it was uh, it was OK. Obviously, that was bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then um, what else? The food, that was also something that I remember struck me a lot. During the first, the first time I met my in-laws, they brought me to a very, what in China stands for, a very fancy Chinese restaurant. At the time, you know, they still had 
a lot of it's less the case today but uh, at the time sort of very prestigious restaurants still had very strange dishes stuff like uh, you know snake or stuff like that uh, which you, you can see less today uh, you know I remember finding that quite quite weird a bit shocking oh yeah listening to The Bridge. You know, what's interesting to me, Arno, is, you know, I'm from the United States of America, and oftentimes in our culture, we look at the French cuisine and think, oh, they're really experimental. They're really out there, escargot and things like that. So for a French person to come to China and say, wow, the Chinese food is really experimental, really out there, it's kind of interesting, you know. I'm Let's come back around because I want to talk about modern China later in the show. But you were the CEO of a company called House Trip which you employed 200 people. Could you walk us through this adventure, what your product was and what it meant to you and what it meant to you letting go? Sure. So, uh, I mean, House Trip was uh, a marketplace for vacation renters. So, you know, on one hand, you had people who wanted to rent out their properties. On the other hand, you had guests wanting to book those properties for their vacation. Basically, kind of a similar concept to Airbnb, except if it was before Airbnb. We launched the concept like uh, one or two years before the PM. Mm-hmm. So we we're actually the first company out of Europe in doing what's now called the sharing economy. The term hadn't been invented back then. And then we went through the whole you know, startup process, raising funding. We got three VCs to back us, the three biggest VCs in Europe, Accel Partners, Index Ventures, and Balderton Capital. We raised, I think, $70 million. Yeah, the team grew from me and my wife in, in our living room in Lausanne, Switzerland, to, I think, at our peak, we even had 250 people. Uh, yeah, it was just, you know, crazy startup experience where we grew very, very fast. And uh, I managed the company during seven years. And in the end, we got an offer to from TripAdvisor to buy the company. So uh, we exited the business in, in 2000. Your new company, Me and Chi, is a little bit smaller, a little bit more family sized. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Can you walk us through what products your new company, Me and Chi, sell and how you got there? I mean, Me and Chi, the main concept is not so much product oriented, it's more information oriented. Because in China, I noticed that actually there are a lot of health issues for which traditional Chinese medicine works. For instance, me, I noticed it on me personally because uh, mm-hmm. I used to suffer from chronic headaches. Like every week, I used to have those, uh, those massive headaches. And, uh, and there was no solution in Western medicine. I mean, you could take like painkillers and stuff, but that's just masking the symptom. It's, it's not curing the issue. Mm. And then I went to see a TCM doctor and uh, he prescribed some, uh, you know, uh, TCM herbs and it was cured. I've never had headaches uh, since. And I've had a couple of other experiences like that. Wow. Where the concept of me and she comes from, the idea is to bring awareness in the West of that all range health issues for which there are established treatments in TCM or no established treatments in Western medicine. I want 
people who have those issues which, which they can't find a solution for. I'm not saying let's substitute TCM for, mm. for everything because, of course, Western medicine has, has plenty of good solutions for a lot of health issues. But I'm more targeting people who haven't found solutions mm. for you know chronic health issues like headaches or, mm -hmm. I don't know, back pain or skin issues like eczema and so on. Mm -hmm. and go to our website and um, you know see what TCM has to offer for those issues. So that's kind of the concept. I had an upper neck problem, a cervical disc slip in my neck uh, about a year and a half ago. And I went to a Western doctor here in China and a really good hospital. And they said, the only thing you can do for this is surgery because it was so bad at that time. And I was terrified of that. I don't want someone opening my back up. So my wife was like, let's try some traditional Chinese medicine and see how that goes. And I was like, you know, if it doesn't work, I'll still have surgery. If it works, I don't have surgery. Either way, you know, yeah. it's worth a shot. So I went to a very good in Wuhan, a traditional Chinese medicine hospital, several floors, very modern looking, looks a lot like a, a Western hospital, you know, style hospital, you know, scientific based hospital. And they gave me treatments for several weeks and slowly I got better. And so in the end, I mean, I may someday still need surgery. I don't know. But for the time being, I have no pain. I have no neck problem. And so I'm very thankful that I did try TCM, traditional Chinese medicine. Maybe in the future, we'll, I'll have to revisit that or we'll see what happens. But for the time being, it has worked and I have avoided the blade. So I'm very appreciative. One thing I noticed on your website was a tea that has something to do with milk. And I, I would like it if you could explain that because there, you know, you don't, you're not product oriented, but you do have this product. Could you explain what this product is for and how you came about providing this? Yeah, sure. So actually, we have two products around um, breastfeeding issues. And again, it stems from, in that case, my wife's experience, because when she was uh, breastfeeding our daughters, she had like most women issues with uh, not having enough milk and what's called uh, engorgement, where the, you mm. know, the milk gets blocked in, in the breast. And I'm crazy enough, there are no solutions for those issues in Western medicine, mm. but solutions established for centuries in TCM, like a combinations of herbs. And so for these issues, we decided to launch uh, two products, one called Milk Boosty, which boosts the amount of, of, of milk that you have, and one called Unblock Nursity, which aims to reduce blockages, basically. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I have a co-host. She's not with me today. Her name is Bebe, and she's complained about this very thing. I think I'll introduce her to what you guys are doing. Maybe it could help her or maybe help friends of hers. Actually, I don't know. If she, I don't think she's going to have another baby. So there we want to come back a little bit to modern China and, you know, things now because you were just I mean, even though you Kuala Lumpur or something now, you were just in Dongbei for what seemed like a couple of months, maybe or maybe a month. I was up there. Didn't get to see you. I was too, or we didn't cross paths. But um, life in China now and life in China 10 years ago and life in China that people perceive who've never been to China are all different things. So you, I think in, you know, Western Europe and America, you get a very different we our media presents China in a specific kind of way. And it almost feels like that China doesn't even exist. And maybe that China was based on what China was like a little bit 10 or 20 years ago. And then you have contemporary real life in China. And I was wondering if you could walk us through your opinions about what people may get wrong outside of China. How is China really versus how they might perceive China? How is China really like 
versus maybe how people who've never been to China or haven't been to China in more than 10 years. What is the reality of your experience of what China's like? And maybe what does Western media get wrong? Sure. I mean, it won't surprise many, I guess, in your audience that the image of China is, I mean, China is largely demonized in the Western media. Uh, and I guess what people who've only ever learned about China through that lens for them, it would be extremely surprising when they arrive in China because very little of what they get told is, is true. So, for instance, if you listen to the media, you have like China is, for instance, a police state. That's something that you hear very often. Like you just said, I just did a two-month trip in Dongbei. Actually, we rented an RV with my family and, and we toured the whole uh, Dongbei, which is the northeast of China. It's uh, four provinces. Um, in two months, not once was I stopped by the police. I didn't even encounter the police. I never got my paper checked and so on. So it's, it's like, it's a normal country. You can just drive around freely and you won't get, you know, harassed by, by the authorities. You don't even see them. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing, you know, people are told is that you're always controlled by a social credit score that, you know, monitors and rates your everyday activity. And if you do something good, your score goes up. And if you do something bad, it goes down. That simply does not exist. It's just a complete myth. People have no score. Uh, if you speak about that to the average Chinese person, they will tell you it's... Um, you froze again. <laughs> ah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, there is a huge gap between this portrayal of China as some sort of uh, Orwellian, dystopian, hellish place and the truth, which is uh, it's a normal country. Uh, people have uh, normal lives, normal jobs. They go shopping, they go to the cinema, and so on and so forth. Of course, mm. one thing that's true is China has a different political system than the West. It's not a liberal democracy. But also, that's often very misunderstood because not having a liberal democracy does not mean that mm. it's not a democracy, actually, because uh, a democracy is where you, know, you have a government that represents the people uh, that is legitimate in the eyes of the people that does you know things that are in the interest of the people whose leaders are you know from the people as well and all of, so so it's the famous uh, you know for the people by the people uh, you know sometimes I, I don't remember which American president said that and you know when you study China that's actually pretty much the case people by and large are behind the government they feel the government as their interest at heart. In order to become a government official, you come from the people. It's a meritocratic uh, system. It's uh, your legitimacy as a ruler, an official is based mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. you know how well you did at school, if you had a good grade at the GACO, and then if you went to a good university, and then if you graduated like top of your class, then you go to uh, <laughs> you know uh, the party school, and then you start governing a small uh, you know county, and if you do a good job, then you go on a, a maybe, I don't know, province and, uh, you know, up you go. And uh, if you've done all that very well, then you go to the top edge of the government and the party. So who's to say that's a worse democratic system than the American system where you have a billionaire who suddenly says, mm -hmm. ah, I want to become president and I'm going to spend, uh, you know, four or five billion advertising myself. And, uh, and if I do a good job at selling myself, then people will vote for me. I think similar. I also think the consultative part of the Chinese system makes it democratic. 
It's not just about voting. It's about they actually take a huge body of regular people, all kinds of people. They try to represent blue collar workers, construction workers, people who work in service, industry, teachers, and they get them together, these 2,000 more people in the CPPCC. I think it's every two years. I'm not actually sure. And they get together with the Congress. And then people basically say, hey, this is what we think, you know, should be done. And then government officials take all of these ideas and their input and try to adjust society to meet the needs and expectations of the people that they are consulting. And then there's a new consultative body put together. And also, there's a, a number, a phone number, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was actually at a train station here in Beijing. And uh, it was last night, I was coming into Beijing Chaoyang. And I noticed that there's the distribution set network for leaving the station when you arrive. Isn't that great? You know, there's buses and there's not a subway system for, that goes to this particular branch. There usually is. And I was thinking, uh, you know, maybe I should call one, two, three, four, five and say, hey, you need a better like pickup system to move people away from the station. And the interesting thing about China is someone would listen and they would probably eventually do something about it. My wife actually called one, two, three, four, five to complain about her mom and dad's community in another province and say, oh, yeah, there's this area that looks like it needs some, you know, redevelopment. And they were and she actually within a few months, some government officials sent workers in to fix up this neighborhood. So you know, people actually, their concerns are dealt with. Whereas in, in the United States, I don't know how it is in France, yep. but in the United States, oftentimes you'll have a pothole and you'll call the local officials and they'll say, oh, okay. And then the potholes will just still be there a year later. And so I'm not saying that America is not democratic, but I, I definitely do think that people misunderstand, just like you're saying, that the Chinese system is much more democratic than a lot of people give it credit for. Because they honestly, outside of China, people really don't know how the Chinese system works. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it all stems from a lack of information at the end of the day. We, we are very uneducated about China. And if only we took the time to, you know, well, it's not about, I think we're not educated at all in Europe and in America about China. We are not told anything about Chinese culture. We are not told anything about Chinese history. And so, of course, it's very easy then for the media. Also, this lack of education among journalists also plays a role because we're educated in the same way, journalists too. Mm -hmm. That plays a huge role in the demonization of China then because we can't know if, if we're being lied to. And I think this actually stems from, in large part, mm -hmm. the geopolitical situation because there is no need to understand someone else when you're very, you know, or at least you feel very superior to them. If you study a bit the, the history, there was a time when we used to understand China very, very well, actually. In the, uh, if you study the, like the Enlightenment, for instance, period in Europe, right before that, there were a lot of Jesuit missionaries that were sent to China, like uh, Matteo Ricci or those people. And you know, because China was such a power at the time, we couldn't impose on them, you know, Christianism or or political system and so on and so forth by by force. Mm -hmm. We had to convince them about. Well, in the case of those missionaries, they wanted to convince them to uh, to become Christian. And in order to convince someone, you have to really study them 
in depth, right? And so that's what those Jesuits uh, did, like Matteo Ricci in particular. He mm -hmm. studied all the mm -hmm. Chinese classics. He was dressing up as a Confucian scholar. He translated the Chinese classics in Latin, which were, which were then sent in, in Europe and, and studied there. And, and we had very deep, actually, among the intellectual class in Europe, a very deep understanding of China. But after that, you know, with the Industrial Revolution and our military might and so on, why bother understanding those uh, those people where we can just, uh, you know, come with our weapons and uh, force anything on them. And so that's been lost. And I think bit by bit, with the rise of Chinese uh, power, China becoming, you know, more important, more powerful, able to defend itself, we're going to come back to a situation where we can't impose on China what we want by force. And we're going to have to understand China better in order to, you know, communicate with them uh, in order to convince them of this and that. And so we're going to go back to that. Uh, it's actually in our own interest to go back to that uh, situation where we understand China. Yeah, I think the argument could even be made for China hawks who they they still need to understand China as well. You know, I, I have a lot of questions for you because it's, it's rare I have someone who, from France on the show. So I noticed in Wuhan that there's a lot of French signage. There are even little French communities that have been left over from, I guess, more than a century ago. And there are French businesses that operate there now, today. Have you been there and have you noticed any unusual connections with your own culture? I've actually never been to Hohan, but I know why there is a strong French community there is because of the auto industry. It's because all the auto French mm -hmm. auto manufacturers set up their operations in Wuhan, you know, to manufacture French cars for the Chinese market. So that's the main reason. And um, actually, you have four French schools in China, one in Shanghai, one in Wuhan, one in Beijing, and one in Guangzhou. So, so it's a, it is one of the four most important uh, French, uh, Chinese cities for the French community in China. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Before there's a little bit of disorder in France lately, Macron visited China. I, man, the picture of him standing there with all of the motorcades, by the way, it was one of the most amazing pictures of the entire year. Um, what do you think the implications for the world, for France, for China, are with Macron's rejoinder with China? And is this going to make France unpopular among its allies in Western Europe? So actually, I think that has been overplayed by the media a bit. Because so what I think Macron wants to do is to be a bit like De Gaulle, you know, De Gaulle, our mythical uh, president after won the, the Second World War and then led France after that. He had basically non-aligned policy for France, foreign policy, where he wanted France to have its own voice contrary to, say, Germany or the UK. He didn't want France to be behind the US, but he, he wanted France to stand alone in the world with its own uh, voice. And that's why he pulled out from NATO, for instance, famously, because he felt that France being in NATO would force it to align behind the US when he, he didn't want that. Today, we're in a 
totally different situation where even though Macron wants to, you know, sustain the gold spirit and uh, give that impression that France has its own vice, I think no one seriously believes it, even in France, because concretely France can't. It is in NATO, it is in the European Union, and now a lot of uh, foreign policy decisions are taken at that level. It's not the power that it was back then. I think back then France was the third or fourth biggest economy in the world. Now we're the eighth, I think. So, yeah, Macron can uh, say what he wants, but sadly, it's uh, concretely, I don't think he can reposition France as an independent power anymore. I would like that, obviously. I think it's very bad that for France to be aligned with the US, but I think the conditions it is in forces it to stay aligned. You know, I've noticed a lot of companies moving into China, even though politicians in the United States, my own country, are saying, oh, we need to, what, it's not decouple anymore, de-risk. We need to de-risk with China. You know, uh, Popeyes is opening 1,700 new branches. Yum is expanding from 13,000 branches to who knows where they'll go. Starbucks is planning more than 2,000 new branches from 6,500 to 9,000. Hilton is going to go up to 730 branches. So all these companies are moving into China. Tim Cook is coming here. Elon Musk is coming here. So even though politicians in the United States are saying, oh, we want to de-risk American businesses like really big on China, I was wondering, you know, with Macron saying he wants to have better relations with China, where do French companies stand on China? Is there a lot more participation with FDI going between these two countries or cooperation at the academic level and so forth? That's a good question. I actually know more about German companies than French companies uh, because uh, I have more <laughs> contact in the German business communities in, in China than the French one, which is a bit ironical, but it's, it's like that. I mean, I know there is a lot of company, French companies that have very substantial interests in China, like, for instance, famously yeah, LVMH. <laughs> Good yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't remember exactly what share of their business is from China, but it's something crazy, like 40, 50% or something like that. So LVMH is a very powerful business in France. It's the biggest, I think, is the biggest market capitalization on the French stock market. So, uh, you know, others like uh, L'Oréal, for instance, another huge French comp company in, in cosmetics, uh, they do a huge amount of business in China. So even though I don't know those businesses personally, I can't imagine that they're lobbying Macron or the French government to uh, mm. de-risk or pull on the, on the Chinese market because that's where, you know, all their growth is coming from. So I think would be logical that there is also a lot of pressure on Macron, the French government, to not de-risk too aggressively. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. One thing that interests this program a lot is the Belt and Road. I'll walk you through why. You know, China raised people out of poverty. The exact amount is unclear because we're using 2010, 2020 metrics, but hundreds of millions of people and eliminating what we call absolute poverty. Obviously, there are still poor people in China. People still need more development, more growth, but there's no one starving. There's no like extreme poverty left in China since around 2020. And the Belt and Road Initiative to me looks like, you know, a lot of 
anti-poverty measurements that have been practiced in China are being rolled out globally. You know, you have the building of hospitals, building of schools, you have huge financial investments, loans at like two and three percent all over Africa, South America, Central Asia to build hydropower and yes, fuel carbon emitting facilities as well. Train tracks, ports, airports, all kinds of things that look like they're growing a global community of logistics infrastructure to increase market activity with a hundred more than 150 members now. It's very controversial in the West, you know, in the EU, in the United States. I was wondering if you could weigh in, why is it controversial and should it be? I don't think it should be controversial. I mean, it's undeniable that it's a, a good thing to develop in, infrastructure in those countries. And actually, if you look at the uh, history of the Belt and Road, that's a fascinating insight that I learned uh, recently. When Xi Jinping was thinking about the project, he actually proposed to the Americans, to John Kerry, who was Secretary of State uh, at the time, to do it jointly with America. He wanted China and America together to go to those you know, countries in Africa, South America, and so on, and jointly finance and build all those infrastructure projects. And uh, it was refused. So it shows that the Belt and Road initiatives, contrary to popular perception, is not a Chinese project to you know, take over the world against the West because they wanted to do it with the West. So I don't think that's the motivation at all. The motivation, I think, from the Chinese side is simply because they built an incredible amount of competency in those domains, infrastructure building and so on, to build China, you know, millions of workers, a lot of skills there and so on. But now China is, uh, is built. So what do you do with all the skills and competencies? Do you just say, okay, we don't need you guys anymore. It's over. We can forget about that. We, we build the country. No, let's put it to use in Africa, for instance, to build those countries. And then the deal with Africa, which I think is a fair deal, is we trade resources for infrastructure. And up until then, I mean, Africa has always been selling resources or getting its resources <laughs> stolen <laughs> at some time, unfortunately. But when it was sending it to France or, or the West, very often the money didn't end up benefiting the people, right? Uh, because, you know, it's a fact there is also a lot of corruption there, which is, uh, you know, often that corruption is encouraged by uh, my country, France, uh, because they can then better control the leadership of those countries. And But when you trade infrastructure, then the, reser the results for the people on the ground are much more tangible. It's not, you know, a president that got money in his pocket. It's uh, we got paid with the road that I use uh, every day on the hospital that, you know, I bring my my daughter to. So I think it's a much fairer dinner than, than just money. So all in all, I think it's a good initiative for everyone involved. And it's not a project to against the West to sort of take over. It's just a project that's kind of win-win. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Recently, when you were um, debating Adrian Zenz, you mentioned uh, safety as a human right. 
I thought that was really interesting. Safety is a human right. And, you know, my country, the United States, oftentimes accuses China of having human rights difficulties, which I think is beyond ironic. But um, you mentioned that China has a great deal of freedom in respect that it has credible amount of safety and it's protecting this human right of safety. Could you elaborate on that? What do you mean? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the debate with Adrian Zenz was uh, which country has more freedom? I mean, it was partially on that, the U.S. or China. And I reminded people that there is a very particular definition of freedom in the U.S., which is personal freedom. But often personal freedom comes at the cost of freedom. So, for instance, in the U.S., uh, one key part of your personal freedoms is the right to bear arms, right? But, you know, that creates sort of issues, um, in particular safety issues, uh, to the point where, you know, school kids now are afraid of uh, getting shot at school. Um, you have, you know, plenty of issues like that. It's not freedom when you're just afraid. You're afraid to go to school. Like, it's, uh, it's really a huge impediment to your freedom to go to school free of fears, right? Actually, I think it was uh, FDR Roosevelt who made a speech in the U.S. on when, at a time when freedom was understood differently in the U.S. on the four freedoms, the four essential freedoms. And one of them was freedom from fear. Another, I think, was freedom from disease, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. So th there was a view of freedom that is not all about personal freedom, but also about taking a step back and looking at freedom more generally. And when you look at freedom that way, looking at freedom more generally, are people free from fear, free from disease, and so on? You can actually legitimately make the point that people in China might be more free than, than they are in the U.S. because people are much safer, like no one is afraid to walk in the streets in the middle of the night, for instance. Freedom from disease, right now China has a life expectancy that's even higher than the US. So, you know, there are many aspects of freedom in which China objectively, which you can demonstrate with metrics, ranks higher than the US. Or another big one is freedom period. Like if you look at the US, you have the largest amount of prisoners in the world. Like uh, I think it's, uh, you are 800 uh, people in prison per 100,000 inhabitants, which is actually the same amount uh, the Soviet Union at the height of the gulags system under Stalin. So it, <laughs> it's quite bad. I think China is like, uh, can't remember the exact number, but it's, uh, it's something like a quarter of that, like 25% or something. So you have objectively more people who have uh, not lost their freedom in China in that regard. I'm going to have to look that up about freedom from, because, you know, I think that the new way that they articulate freedom in the United States may not be inclusive to some of these grander, more societally driven ideas. Thank you. This is something I like to ask all of our guests that we have on in terms of, you know, obviously we're not communicating well, the West and China. And this is a big problem because this we're living in a multipolar world now and we need to understand each other. And I think it's safe to say for those of us who've lived in China, that Chinese people really do understand the West quite well, actually. So in terms of like helping people from the West, you know, I'm including Australia and all of Europe to some extent, North America, Canada, you know, the whole West, it's not the geographic West. How can we get a better understanding of China and what ways can we develop better communication and a better dialogue? So on a personal level, what you can do is simply travel to China. Uh, that would be my advice. You know, get a tourist visa. That's very easy. Um, 
go to China, uh, you know, just travel around, speak with uh, with everyday Chinese, try to, you know, learn from them, learn their culture and so on. That will already, you know, change your view quite a bit, I think. And then on broader country level, I think back to what we were saying earlier, I think a lot of efforts needs to be made to by governments to make sure that there is some level of education on China. We're already starting to see countries outside the West do that. Like, I don't know if you saw, but Saudi Arabia just announced that uh, you could learn Chinese now. They will teach Chinese to their kids in uh, at school. I think Russia is starting to do that as well. And I think the West also should do efforts direction or maybe it's not teaching the language, but it's at least teaching a tiny bit of Chinese history so that we, we understand what this, you know, country that's, uh, you know, such so important in today's world and uh, that's, you know, so big as a share of the population. We need to understand its, its history, its culture, where it's coming from much, much better. Otherwise, you know, we're going to keep lying to ourselves and that's objectively against our interests. Uh, even if we want to compete with China, even if we're a China mm -hmm, hope, mm -hmm. no one can make the argument that it's a bad thing to understand China. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. When I was in high school and in college, the most easily accessible language courses were French and Spanish. You know, for obvious historical reasons, you know, France, French is spoken all over Africa in addition to in Europe, and Spanish is spoken all over Latin America, including in Europe. So it made a lot of sense. And it's both of those are two of, along with English, six official languages for the United Nations, as is Mandarin. So Mandarin is spoken by 1.4 billion people. I mean, it should definitely be at least an option for kids, you know, when they're choosing to learn about cultures that are outside of the West, they should be given the option at least minimally to start learning about Chinese. It doesn't necessarily have to be everyone, but it could be like, oh, you want to study, you know, French, you want to study, you know, you want to study Spanish, you want to study Arabic, or you do you want to study Mandarin? And by the way, one thing that is quite funny is when you look at American elites, like, uh, for instance, the granddaughters of both Trump and Biden, they're learning Chinese. That's right, yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. So they know that uh, it's, it's something important for the education of their kids. So, you know, if they know that, they should, you know, not reserve it only for their own kids so they have an advantage over the population, but, uh, you know, do it for the common good. And one thing we like to encourage is for Chinese people to continue to go abroad. There's been concerns, especially in, I guess, the UK and the United States, I'm not sure about in France, with uh, some rising anti-Asian hate crimes and whatnot. I don't know really about Western Europe outside of uh, the UK. So could you walk us through what kind of advice would you give to Chinese people who want to come to maybe study at university or get a job in France, Germany, etc. My main advice would be expect to face a lot of misunderstanding of your country. And there are two ways that you can react to that. A is uh, basically not engage or, you know, even just for the sake of friendship, even agreeing, yes, you're right, or China is bad, and so on and so forth. Or you can actually try to dispel 
misunderstandings. And I think Chinese people abroad should jump on that opportunity to break misunderstandings that people have on their country. That's also something that can really help bridge the huge gap of understanding between both cultures. They can, uh, you know, patiently take the time to teach people they meet about, about China. I think they should also use their time abroad to do that. That will make for a better world. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I agree with you completely. And um, I do so carefully. <laughs> and last question I have for you, and a, a lot of experts in the West in the United States also, they've never even come to China. Or if they have, they haven't been to China in like more than a decade. Even some of the really famous experts haven't been here in 20 years. So you said you started coming to China 17 years ago. And you, we started this program. You were saying that the air was quite polluted. For As an example, and it was difficult to see several meters in front of you. Could you compare what China was like when you first started coming to China 17 years ago to the China of 2023? It's completely different, and at the same time, not that different. So I would say that uh, obviously life conditions have changed enormously uh, for the average uh, Chinese. So I remember the first time I came, my uh, in-laws were still living in the, the Mao-style communal buildings of Shanghai, where you share you know, the kitchen in the staircase with the other flats in, in your building, and uh, toilets, and so on and so forth. And, and you live in a very small space with uh, almost, well, very little amenities. That was the common life of most Chinese back then. Now, like most Chinese, they have a modern apartment with all the amenities that uh, you know everyone in in the west also also enjoys back then also not that many people had cars now everyone has a car more and more electric and you know back then pollution was bad most people many people were working you know very you know polluting dirty jobs very hard now it's improved uh, tremendously so that's changed a lot. But at the same time, you know, on, not only for the past 17 years, when you study Chinese history, it's for the past centuries, China has remained very, well, very much China. <laughs> you know, a lot of cultural traits in China are intemporal. They don't change. They will always stay stay the same. And that's also what's very interesting about China, like the importance of uh, family, for instance, that's always been there, that will always be there. The sense of community, of, uh, you know, the primacy of the collective and the individual uh, that's always been there, that will always be there. The, you know, all the festivals like Chinese New Year and so on and so forth, that will always stay. The importance of education, you know, that will always stay. So despite the incredible speed of the modernization of China, <laughs> they managed to keep essential aspects of, of the culture. That's a bit the, uh, how would you say, the, the paradox about China, where they, they modernize, but they also stay themselves. I'm struck by this because this conversation came up with me today. I was talking to someone who I might interview about Mid-Autumn Festival, and I was trying to prompt them for the kinds of questions I will ask them. I said, oh, you can just tell me, you know, how Mid-Autumn Festival is practiced now versus how it used to practice. You know, tell me the modern version. And she said, well, maybe I'll just tell them how we sit around and quote Tong Dynasty poetry. And I was thinking to myself, it's 2023 and they're going to spend Mid-Autumn Festival with their family quoting poetry to each other. And it kind of shocked me that this cultural tradition just keeps going on and on and on. It's like, you know, permanent, you know, it's amazing. 
I think a lot has to do with the writing system because because our writing system is based on pronunciation. It's extremely difficult for us to access ancient texts because it's uh, you know it's written in in languages that we don't understand anymore, like Latin and so on and so forth. Mm. But then, since it's based on ideograms, even though it was pronounced differently 1,000 years ago, say, mm. the ideograms stay the same. So you can still read everything that was written, you know, 1,000, 1,500 years mm. ago. Mm. And so you have a much stronger connection with the past mm. than we do. I think that's that plays a big role. Mm. I want to just say thank you so much for joining the program, Arnaud. It was fantastic having you here. And I've learned a lot listening to you give your explanations to some of these questions that we ask a lot of folks. Thank you again so much for your time. Thank you so much for the invite. It was great speaking with you. Oh, yeah.